Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we will be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policymakers, and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. We will be delving into and analyzing the latest news around tech, geopolitics, finance, global business, entrepreneurship, property, leadership, law, philanthropy, and life. This podcast is available on all platforms. But for those of you who prefer to watch, uh, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews. Uh, You can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Please do leave a review as it helps to get the word out and about. Uh, My name is Ninda Johal. I am the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Awards and co-publisher of the Business Influencer magazine. And I will be your host for the show. In this episode, I speak to the legendary retailer Gerald Ratner, a fascinating story in which he documents not only how he grew his family retail chain Ratners to market dominance in the UK, but how he set up a successful presence in the US and how it became one of the hottest stocks on the London Stock Exchange. But the utterance of two words brought this high street giant tumbling down, wiping off millions of its value and ultimately his removal. After seven desperate years living on antidepressants, he emerged to take on his second challenge, which he did so very successfully. So let's pop over and listen to this enthralling journey, Mr. Gerald Ratner. Good afternoon or good evening. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for asking me. Um, you're um, well. You're you're very well known, whether it's retail or business in general, and certainly in the arena of entrepreneurship. And um, I, I thought the journey, and I've heard you speak. I heard you speak brilliantly in Birmingham, and um, and I thought your journey was so so amazing. I thought the new bunch of entrepreneurs, and even those who've been in the game a while would be intrigued on how you grew and scaled a business, how by simply some of the words you said, it collapsed. But then, amazingly, how you recovered and built a multi-million pound business again. And that, I think, is quite a journey. So if you don't mind, that's the route I'm going to take. So my first question, really, I suppose, is... um, my guess is you grew up, because you took it over from, from your father, you grew up in very much an entrepreneurial environment. Is that right? Yes. I mean, my parents were always talking shop. Um, my father had, uh, well, I don't really remember, I mean, till he had about six shops, because at that point, he was taking me round the shops on a Friday during my school holidays. So he always involved me in the business, even though, well, I was eight years old, eight or nine years old. He took me around to those six shops, which were Clapham Junction, Richmond, which was the first one, Slough, uh, High Wycombe, um, St Albans and Luton. So I remember the six that it was. And he took me around there. Uh, so I was always interested in the business, you know, and, and uh, you know, him and my mother were always talking about it. And he was in business with his um, brothers, we didn't get on with very well at all, and his father. 
So um, it was a typical sort of family business where they were always arguing. But I was <laughs> listening. I'm always a good listener. And I was always sitting in the car, eavesdropping on their conversation. And, and, and do you think that's where you did a lot of your learning, the whole entrepreneurship thing, by just simply being so young? and learning some of those skill sets without having, I, I don't know, did you do an MBA or did you go to business school? I assume. No, <laughs> I didn't do anything like that. I went, I hardly went to school. I went to um, a prep school, uh, which I did. I just about scraped through to get my 11 plus. Um, but there were only about, there were about 15 people in the class, 12 or 15, but we were, segregated in different groups and there was just six of us really uh, that were taking 11 plus and um, I didn't know this at the time but I was borderline pass but uh, my you used to give three choices my first choice was Hendon County Grammar which I lived in Hendon it was just a um, so the the I only found this out at a later date that apparently I was such a borderline and the the headmaster argued that I should be, I don't know why, that I should be taken on, whereas the rest of the, this is what he said to me later, uh, where the rest of the board didn't want me to come on, but he argued that I should, I don't know why he never met me, uh, but he told me all that when he expelled me, that how disappointed he was, um, that he made a stand for me against his colleagues and I let him down because I'd come last um, two years running but then again it wasn't six people in the class in the grammar school it was 33 people in the class and I really didn't absorb anything that was going on I mean I'm sure I had some sort of they'd call it something or other today I don't know what but there was nothing in those days nobody diagnosed anyone with any problems um, well not that I've had any problems since but I obviously couldn't concentrate on it or I wasn't interested but my father was very ill at the time uh, and I was worried about that because he'd had a brain tumour. Um, but I don't know whether that was an excuse or not. But anyway, the bottom line was I got expelled for being stupid, basically. Because you wouldn't get, you wouldn't, they wouldn't do that to you today. <laughs> but so, so it's interesting. So obviously you learnt a hell of a lot weekends and going in after. And, and then, of course, so, so for you, was it quite a natural thing to go into the family business? Oh, completely natural. Um, you know, uh, after being expelled, my father sent me to some school, which was called a crammer, where you had to learn everything you didn't learn in a very short space of time with intensive training. So you used to go into different, you could choose. Uh, this was uh, fantastic for me because there was no discipline involved you could decide whether to go to this lecture or that lecture, or, you know, like a university setup. Yeah. And of course, what did I do? I didn't go to any lecture. I went to the betting shop. Um, so I didn't achieve anything there, surprisingly. I gambled all the time. And when I wasn't in the betting shop, I was gambling with the other students, uh, playing sort of cards. And we played this game because odds and evens with coins. Anyway, so my father said, this is hopeless. Um, you might as well, it's 15, you might as well come into the business now, that's what you've always wanted to, um, because, you know, you're not, you, you're, you didn't say you're a hopeless case, but you're not learning anything, so there's no point, you're not going to learn anything, so don't come into the business, which I did, and I went in, and I loved it, I went in just as a shop assistant um, in Wood Green, and um, 
then they were worried, the manager and the assistant were worried uh, about me coming along, that I was going to be sort of either highfalutin and all that. But as soon as I arrived, I started talking about the horses and we, uh, from then on, we got on very well and I went around the betting shop there as well. So I didn't <laughs> do it. I wasn't really working particularly hard when I started working. And, 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 and so, so you started at the bottom and then when did it become apparent to you because then you took over, and, and I'm, I'm interested in how you took over from your father, because that's it's quite an interesting transition itself. And, and when you did take the top seat, yeah. what did you think you could do to improve it? Because you clearly saw, once you'd taken over a big group, how easy was it to take over from your father? Well, that, that you are absolutely right. I, I, he was had this brain tumour, and which was getting worse, and it changed his personality from being somebody who was really pleasant and caring, he was short-tempered and uh, irrational and making ridiculous decisions and, and the business started suffering. You know, the business really, he was brilliant in the early days and that's why he'd managed now to build up to about a hundred stores. And, but he, he was totally losing his way. He was losing the plot and he became paranoid. And it just, you know, it's, it's very sad, you know, to, to see the change in him. Um, but I could see that, um, the writing was on the wall because we'd gone into loss, 34,000 loss. And then we discovered it was a public company that H. Samuel, uh, the biggest jewellers in the country, had bought 20% of our shares, which could only mean one thing. They were about to bid. They'd already bought James Walker, which was the second largest jewellers. And I was, <laughs> I can assure you, when H. Samuel would buy us, the first person to be fired would be me, uh, the, the boss's son. So um, I was getting, I could see, and I had a mortgage and stuff like that. I mean, I wasn't, sound, you know, people seem to think that, you know, if you're the son of somebody who's got 100 shops, you're very wealthy and stuff like that. But it wasn't really like that. I was earning about 5,000 a year or 7,000 a year or something. And uh, my father never gave me special treatment. You know, I was like, the, by now I'd moved to Oxford Street and I was like the gopher going up and down. But my friends were doing very well and they'd started a business at a young age um, and I felt I could do it. So my father wouldn't budge. He was a chairman and managing director and he was very self autocratic. So I had to take over. I was fed up with where I was. I was not getting any salary increase. We HM were about to So I came up with this scheme, which I always come up with schemes. Um, like the, the health club, which we'll come to. But I came up with this scheme that um, I said to him, it's very simple, these plans, are, these uh, cunning plans are very simple. I said to him that your brothers really feel you should step down because of, you know, the performance of the business and your illness and everything. Um, they feel very strongly. And he would see the writing on the wall that all of his brothers voted him off the board, uh, voted him down, he'd have to go. Um, they all ganged up on him. And then, but there was a completely made up story. And I went to the brothers and said that my father wants to resign uh, and he wants me to take over. So as they weren't speaking to each other, they never did, they were always arguing, but they never spoke <laughs> to each other. I thought I'd get away with this. And I did, strangely enough. So, and I could see that exactly where to go because we were doing very well when we had the jewellery business. It's all about having a good buyer who buys the right jewellery. That's very important. Um, I don't know about other retail business, but it's all in the product and the jewellery and the 
well, the display and everything. Um, you know, you have to display things and light things very carefully, but there's certain rules that you've got to stick to. But the, we had this buyer called Terry Jordan, who was brilliant, and he used to buy cheap stuff. Um, and he used to sell it cheap. Uh, he didn't use a lot of material, you know, buy a lot of gold and the diamonds and stuff, but he managed to get the price really at a very fantastic level. But my father, of course, who lost, became irrational, had fired him. And I realised the first thing I'd have to do to get the business, because it's very simple, the business was doing well when Terry Jordan was the buyer and doing very badly when he wasn't, because we'd gone up market and we were expensive and we were suffering. And Terry Jordan by now had left and he started off opening up shops next door to us with a poster saying, compare our prices. And he was like the old Ratners. You know, the manager said, he's wearing our shoes, isn't he? I remember that expression. And he was packed just like we were. So the simple thing was to um, get him back. Uh, but by now he'd become a big shot, he had 26 shots. But I went around to see him and I offered him, because we're a public company, I said, I'll pay you four million pounds for your business. So he couldn't resist that because he's a very basic sort of guy. You know, the reason that he was a successful buyer because he was had the common touch. You know, he used to go to Butlins for his holidays and he knew what the public up north, Manchester, Liverpool, what they would want. So... You know, people have always want, like Primark do well today, they always want low prices. It's not a rocket science. So, um, but I couldn't get the uh, city to place the shares to raise the four million pounds. You know, the idea is you um, would have a rights issue and issue the shares and get the cash. That's the idea. But, but we were doing so badly, the shares were down to 27p. Nobody wanted them. So, in the end, I gave Terry. Two and a half million quids worth of shares, um, valued at 27p. And I gave him just a piece of paper, which was an IOU for the other one and a half million pounds. That's all it was called a loan note. It's basically a piece of paper. Anyway, those 27p shares went to £4.20. So Terry became quite a wealthy person. He bought loads of houses in Portugal and uh, houses in South Africa and, and uh, London. He had a beautiful place everywhere. He made millions. Uh, anyway, he came back and, uh, yes, our fortune started coming back to how they were, but even better because I then coupled Terry's low price buying with very aggressive marketing, which I'd copied from somebody else, uh, posters, everything, what Terry didn't do, which I then introduced was everything was reduced uh the manufacturer's recommended price reduced everything had a line through it which everything does today but in those days in the 1980s uh, especially in the jewelry business nobody was doing it uh, but the public loved it and um we started taking you know big money again and uh, then i h samuel who we were hitting because the jewelry isn't business isn't that big if you start doing well your competitors do badly uh h and we were hitting I felt I could take them over. Um, so, but the problem with H. Samuel, like Morrison's today, which is a big attraction, they own their properties or they own half of their properties. So I went to um, the chairman uh, and he owned over 50% of the business. But I went to him and I said, what about, you knew you couldn't buy him. Everyone tried to, all the property guys were buzzing around him because it was, you know, H. Samuel, the biggest jewelers in the country, huge locations. Fantastic freehold properties. Everybody wanted them. You could see it was a property play, underperforming, but they had over 50% of the business. But I managed to persuade him to merge with me. 
Uh, so it was a straight merger and knowing that I was going to fire him. Uh, in fact, I went to see a barrister just to check and he said, don't fire him yet because this was after we did the merger because he will sue you to say that you always plan this. Wait and then wait for three months and say you didn't get on with him and then fire him. And this is what I did. So I ended up um, taking the Ratner's stores of 150 stores to 600 overnight by buying H. Samuel. And H. Samuel, when we put this merchandise in with the uh, aggressive marketing, because they had much better name than us, better locations, their profits went from 4 million when we bought them to 60 million in a year. I mean, it just absolutely, we were taking more money per square foot than any other retailer. It was just a phenomenal success. But extraordinary, uh, Gerald, you you went after uh, somebody bigger than you. So, I mean, that takes quite a lot of gumption and confidence to say they're bigger than us, but we'll, we'll, we'll take them, you know, we'll, we'll buy them. And then, of course, you have to, you have to persuade him. But that means you had, you had big vision, big ideas, and you had a lot of, um, well, you took risk. Well, I, you know, as I've always taken risks. That's why I spent a lot of time in the betting shop. I mean, risk is what you do in the in business. Uh, it's the thing that gives you the biggest buzz. Uh, and a lot of people said to me, yeah, well, I couldn't do what you do because you're prepared to risk everything. Uh, because, yes, uh, if you do uh, buy a business three times your size and you don't succeed, you're out. Or, you know, when we went to America, um, they would turn, our investors would turn on us with venom if we failed there. So, but I love the risk because the rewards are enormous and it's, there's nothing more exciting. Uh, but yeah, I was very ambitious. To, I knew, always knew H. Samuel, if we bought that, then I'm in the big league. We'd never be in the big league with just Ratners. Um, and that's what I wanted. I mean, I'm a very different person today. Uh, but in those yeah. days, at the age of 34, uh, I didn't care about anything but being a, somebody who was running a huge business. Well, I didn't even want the money, particularly. I mean, uh, yeah, I was earning 850000 a year, but that was not the big, um, that was not the thing that excited me. The thing that excited me was the making this the biggest jewellers in the world, which, which I did eventually. It's, it's interesting when you speak to a lot of successful entrepreneurs, they do say it's not the money that drives you. What the, the, the drive is, is the ambition and to grow something into really, really something big. I, I've heard also you say that say, without having the ability to sell, or sales as a trait can hold you back. But if you can sell, you're going to be successful, full stop. It's all about selling. That's what, that's what, it, that's what business is, selling. I mean, we're selling, I'm selling now, you know, selling, we're selling on this podcast. Um, when you, you know, you see investors, you're selling. Um, and that's very important that you're aware of that because the fact that I worked in the shop behind the counter always made me understand that that's what it's about. The, the distance between, you know, the jewelry, there's not self-service. You stood behind the counter and it's that three foot distance between you and the customer and what you said to them. Uh, and that never changed. And that's why I could relate to the managers um, uh, when I took over and ran it because they knew that I, I knew the business. I knew I'd been there. I'd been in the shop since I was 15. You know, it wasn't until 34. You know, we jumped a lot. I was there for nearly 20 years doing nothing, uh, working in the shops, were, you know, but I'd learned. I learned. I listen and I learn. And um, 
that's why you get certain people that come into businesses that don't know, you know, they don't know that particular business. And jewellery is very specialised. You really do have to be, you know, know what you're doing. You don't have to be a jeweller, but you have to know the jewellery trade. Um, so, yeah, and I knew it back to front, 20 years hard labour in there. And um, people who didn't, because I brought in a financial director um, when we got big, and he didn't know anything about the jewellery business. And he was useless to me because, okay, you don't take him on to sell jewellery, but you take him on to um, be an accountant. And the problem with account, there's always this joke that they are an anti-profit department because they try and do everything they can to stop you selling. Don't they understand by cutting back, making cutbacks in, in investing, you are not selling. You're doing the opposite. To sell, you have to have a lot of lines. You have to have 5,000 lines in the shops. You have to continually improve the shops, decorate them, light them, make them looking good, invest in the staff, invest in the business. If you're an accountant, like for British Airways, the accountants decided to cut. You used to get two pieces of chocolate on the British Airways flight. But some accountant came up and says, we're going to save £70,000 a year if we only give them one piece of chocolate. That's typical accountant philosophy. That is negative selling. That was the thin end of the wedge. Then British Airways started cutting this and cutting that. They could see that they were on paper they were making savings. And British Airways ended up like EasyJet. They are no longer a premium airline because of accountants cutting. And, you know, that, that's, the, that's the problem. British home, home stores, Debenhams, there were nothing wrong with them, those retailers, but they were run by people who asset stripped and cut. And that isn't the way to sell. Selling is is throwing money at things. So you took over, you, you took over the business, you uh, brought the chap who who was successful prior to you taking over. So you got him in, bought his shops, you bought H Samuel, you were now scaling, you used the city and the market to fund everything. I remember you saying that was the, that's the beauty of running a public listed company. You don't actually have to give cash. You just use the instruments and the shares to buy things. So you scaled it. You were now at your height, I'm assuming. Uh, what, what was the sort of valuation at its very, very highest peak? We were making, you know, we were making profits of 125 million pounds and the profit forecast was 200 million. There isn't any retailer. As far as I know, this was 30 years ago. Yeah. So that is like a billion profit. There isn't any retailer today that's making a billion profit. So it was massive. Um, the valuation was never as the P ratio was always on the low side because of the fact that we were issuing shares the whole time we were expanding. And it's a very simple fact that if there's a scarcity of shares, I mean, diamonds, the whole thing is brilliantly controlled by De Beers, who always try and create rarity in diamonds. So there's always a shortage, and that puts the price up. If it wasn't for De Beers, there'd be so many diamonds mined, they'd become worthless, but they control it. Um, what I did by issuing so many shares, the shares were always available, so they didn't go up. They still were, in the early days, they went up more than anyone. They went up, to, in fact, they were the share of the year. But, but towards the later days, I was issuing shares to such a degree that, you know, we did, that was holding back and um, the, the valuation of the business. So you use great financial engineering, you matched it with great sales and marketing, you matched it with a vision and an ambition, 
You are now king of the high street. Now take I, me to I, the I faithful voted, knight. Yeah, I was, I was just before you get to that. I was voted retailer of the year, the NatWest. Uh, uh, so yeah, I was um, riding high as I was that faithful. It wasn't a night actually; it was a day. But anyway, carry on. I oh, was it okay? Sorry. Okay, so take us to that fateful day when, well, which marks thirty years. This, yeah, yeah. This Remember year marks thirty years of that day. Yeah. Uh, so, so just go through that in your own words. What happened? Yeah, it was me actually who tweeted that uh, it was a thirty-year yeah. anniversary, right. and if I hadn't done that, nobody would mention it. But and I got <laughs> something like about twenty-five thousand likes for that. I, I was one of them. Oh, thank you. Well, the, <laughs> the reason I did it is because I now use it to my advantage, but uh, yeah. to speech and mentoring and stuff like that. But anyway, yeah, I was invited to do a speech at the Albert Hall. Um, it was quite an honour because there were six thousand people going, and they would they would invite the businessman who was like the main, who was doing the best at the time, sort of thing. This the person you know who, who was riding on the crest of the wave. So. I turn up there at the Albert Hall. Uh, the other speaker is um, President of Clerk, uh, oh. South Africa, uh, President of South Africa, and Norman Lamont, um, who was the Chancellor. So it was quite, you know, a big thing. And in fact, President of Clerk is saying that he's going to end apartheid, which is quite a big um, announcement. After, because we hadn't been playing cricket with them for ten years and stuff, and this boycott, and that was all going to end, and he's announcing that. But that wasn't what made the press the next day. It was me describing a show decanter as crap, and uh, that was all over the Sun. It was all over the Mirror, which I don't blame them. I blame myself. It was a mistake, but um, it was a joke to liven up a business speech, but that's the way I was, you know. I was always making those jokes. In fact, I had made those exact jokes before at other speeches and people found them very funny and took them the way they were. But this was a big event where the press were present and you in fact had to give them a draft of the speech in advance. Um, and the Daily Mirror, it was the Daily Mirror who kicked this off. I know it was all over the sun, but the sun, in fact, because I'd got the paper that night, um, weren't running it or running it in a very small way. The mirror were plastering it or whatever. And when the sun saw the mirror plastering it, they, they then uh, copied it and did it all over their paper. Um, but, you know, at the Albert Hall, nobody thought anything of it. I made, I said that, you know, we sell a pair of earrings, same price as a prawn sandwich, 99p, but the joke was a sandwich would last longer than the earrings. Self-deprecating joke. Would have got away with that one, but then I said that, you know, we sell a sherry decanter. Now, this was an item that we'd acquired when we bought H. Samuel, which I never liked because I thought I actually didn't think much of it uh, because I couldn't believe that it was a silver plated tray, six glasses, and a decanter, all for $12.95. I've always liked beautiful cut glass. And there was now this, this new sort of glassware coming in from the Far East that was cheap, cast and moulded. But, you know, so when I'd actually shown a journalist 
around the Birmingham factory after I built H. Samuel, I showed it to her and she said, how can you sell that for so cheap? Everyone used to say that, how can you sell it so cheap? And I go, because it was ridiculously cheap. And I said, because it's crap. That was a joke I made. Um, a lot of retailers, it was like a standing joke, uh, saying that well, yeah. we, cut, we sell cheap because we cut out the middlemen or we buy in bulk. This was a joke, which nobody expected. And everybody laughed. But uh, Albert Hall was obviously not the place to do it, and not the time, because we were also in recession. So, uh, you know, it's like the banking crisis. People are looking for full guys, and I was it. And um, it was... Uh, quite horrendous um, in fact it was voted the worst mistake of all time by the sun yeah but you didn't think as you walked down the steps having delivered the speech you thought nothing of it because you delivered this line before absolutely nothing of it um everybody laughed and clapped they thought it was a great speech and in fact in that speech you know i talked about the quality of our i said we succeed because we sell high quality products sold by high quality staff that was the actual line you can see it online it's on youtube um but yeah uh i shouldn't have said it the daily mirror journalist came up and said aren't you making fun of your customers then for that's so the first time i thought a little bit uh a bit worried but then i thought no big deal that'll appear in page 15 of the daily mirror some little column no idea that it would have the coverage that it had and that we'd be talking about it 30 years later it's interesting. There's a, a comment uh, by the CEO of Walsh, no, I forget his name now, um, who said uh, when he was cancelling his flights on Ryanair, and he said, Well, my prices are so cheap. He said, I can cancel them anytime I want. And if you don't like it, go and catch something else. But nobody said anything because he just said, That's just, that's just the way it is. But it was interesting what happened to you. So, what happened next then? So, well, can I just, the media went crazy. Yeah, let me just pick you up on that. Are you referred to Michael O'Leary, the chief executive. Yeah, Michael O'Leary, sorry, yeah, the name escaped me. And, and um, the thing about uh, Michael O'Leary, um, nobody's going to boycott Ryanair if he's offering the cheapest uh, yeah. cheapest flights because you don't really care as long as you get to there. Yeah. You'll be on the cheap. And in fact, what he says, like, you know, we're going to charge people to go to the lavatory and all that, all those jokes and insulting people. It all builds to the fact that Ryanair's got the reputation for being ridiculously cheap, no frills, which is what he wants to do. But the jewellery is exactly the opposite. Nobody's going to get down yeah. on their knee after they've heard, you know, if I were the chairman of Ryanair and I said it was crap, we'd still be in business, not a problem. It was because yeah. it was jewellery. So what happened after that was uh, that the press you know, wrote about it in a big way. And you know what it's like with these stories, they don't go away. Um, the Sun no. then, three days later, put a picture of my house on the front page saying this was the house that Crap built. It was a beautiful house on the river and stuff like that. And I like making fun of my customers. And, you know, they built this whole thing about me being um, like an arrogant snob that makes fun of people. It's just anybody who knew me, I come from, you know, quite modest background and uh, I'm not like that in any way. I never have been. Yeah. But anyway, that's a lot of people that are painted in the press are not what they are, but there's no point in blaming the press. They, you know, we get the press we deserve. So yeah, they, they were writing about it. Sales started going down and I thought, are they going to go down anymore? Um, 
I took the view that because we were running about 10% down a week afterwards, that it would start recovering, you know, that the, the, the story would fade and that yeah. the, it would fade from people's minds and we would start going back to how we were. But the opposite was true. It built and built and built, no social media, but word of mouth. And then I went on the Terry Wogan show, which was a mistake because I basically uh, informed the 50% of the population that hadn't even heard the story. Right. So, and it got worse and worse. And then the worst thing was it then became, uh, people then realized that I owned H. Samuel as well, and that I owned uh, Ernest Jones yeah. and Leslie Davis and Watch of Switzerland. And they started going from one shop to the next, trying to avoid a ratless store uh, and asking for refunds and stuff like that. And instead of making the 200 million pound profit that year, uh, we, l we lost um, 100 million. Wow. Wow. And how, how did you feel? What was going through your mind? I mean, this is a pure crisis, isn't it? I mean, Gareth Southgate said that his stomach was being ripped out. He felt his stomach had been ripped out yeah. after the penalties. And that was actually quite a good description because that's exactly how I felt. I, I described it as, as daggers going into my stomach. But yeah, that's exactly it. It's un, undescribable. I know nobody's dying all that, that God forbid. But... It was something that I'd worked very hard since I was been in the business since a kid. It was my life. It was not healthy, you know, you should have other interests, but I had, all I could care about was, because I'd been through all these bad times with my father and stuff and going backwards, and it was a wonderful feeling to turn it round and nobody could believe that we could succeed in so much. And then being the only retailer really to go to America and succeed. It was just phenomenal and it was all thrown away through a stupid joke. So it was unbearable, unbearable pain. And, uh, I remember lying in bed um, four o'clock in the morning, you know, in a sweat, thinking, what the hell have I done? How could I do this? I've wrecked everything that I've always wanted. So it was as bad as it gets. And so what happened next then? So you've obviously got staff who must have been worried about what was oh, going on. The worst thing you can do in these situations is listen to people's advice. Um, and I was advised, I'm chairman and chief executive, to bring on a chairman um, okay. to distance me, distance me from, the, from the business so he could be the face of it. Um, but, of course, he fired me. Just like I fired the chairman of H. Samuels. So you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Um, yeah. So he fired me, and it was, uh, in a way, he put me out of my misery a bit, you know, like a dog being put to sleep. Um, so I went home, and I didn't get out, I didn't leave my home for seven years. I lay in bed watching kids. Wow. Yeah, I was in a desperate, bad place, miserable. Um, wallowing in my grief which is the worst thing you can do that's a long time yeah and it felt like even longer <laughs> and, then, and then so how did you how did you stay sane i mean i didn't that's a long, that's I, a long time joe that's a i didn't say stay sane i went off my rocker i was prescribed um prozac and no, 
Yeah, Prozac. I was going to say Viagra, but that wasn't. <laughs> I was prescribed Prozac, and um, that didn't help because although I felt a bit better, it didn't get me back. That's why I think it did go on for seven years because I've given up. The Prozac makes you feel. I'm not saying it's good for you know maybe it works for some people, but for me, uh, it just put me more into a shell. You know, mm. I, I just I was happier with my situation, which was not a good thing because you needed to go out back out there. And it wasn't until I gave that up and started cycling um, to pass the time, basically. Uh, that I got all my, I started thinking clearly during from the exercise and I could see it was brilliant. I'd never done all this exercise, but I was feeling good at the end of it for the first time. You know, when you really feel bad for a long, long time and then you start feeling good, it's incredible. Um, you know, somebody who's like got no money and then they suddenly get money, that is much more exciting for them than somebody who's always had money. So I then um, thought the benefits of um exercise i could see this i mean i know that everyone now talks about nothing else but this is 1997 and there wasn't we weren't all exercise mad like we were today. No. so i thought i'd open up a health club so just before we jump to the health club what did your wife think of all of this you being a tongue seven she said to me that um unless i get out and get a job she's going to throw me out which was ironic because my first wife threw me out because uh, I was never at home and he was <laughs> uh, throwing me out because I was always at home, but there you go. Um, so I, uh, she, she was fed up, absolutely fed up with me. Not only the fact I had no money, but the fact I was in the house the whole time. So had she been not there, maybe you might not have had, the, so you, sometimes it's that support structure around you that can get you through. If she wasn't there, I'd probably still be there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she threatened to kick me out. So I did. So that and the fact that I was cycling made me think, yeah, uh, I've got to go back. I've got to do something. I was unemployable, according to the press. They keep yeah. reminding me that I'm unemployable. Uh, you know, because they weren't, this is now seven years after the event, and they were still using me as an example of bad, somebody who was bad in business and, who was a villain. I was a poster boy for failure. Every time somebody had screwed up, they said, oh, it's you know, a bit like Ratner and stuff like that. It was just endless bad publicity. So, um, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't have any money. I was absolutely skint. Uh, but I found a site in uh, Henley near where I live. And uh, I couldn't buy the property, which was three quarters of a million pounds, but I put it in solicitor's hands. And I'd realised you can put things, I don't know what the rules are today, but you can say to somebody, I'm going to buy this property, put it in solicitor's hands, even though you've got no hope of completing the deal, you've got no money to complete it, nobody asks you. If you buy a house tomorrow for 50 million pounds, you instruct your solicitor, you could be living in a council flat. I'm going to buy that 50 million pound. You've got a month or two to exchange contracts. Mm. Anyone can do it, presumably. So well, this is what I did. So once I had it in solicitor's hand, I thought, oh, good. It's mine, as far as anyone else is concerned. I've got it in solicitor's hands. I'm about to buy it, even though I had no money. So I started um, 
telling everyone, you know, it's opening. And I put an advert in the Henley Standard saying it's going to be opening. And I was put a drawing of how it's going to look, and which was completely made up. And uh, I then offered, well, actually, I got somebody who actually drew a really wonderful uh, picture of how something would look when it was finished. So I started selling it, um, selling membership before it was, before I had exchanged contracts. And on the back, and the back of the fact that I am well known, everybody knew about it in Henley. I mean, basically, health clubs—they're all pretty similar. So the yeah. big, the big thing is getting people to notice you. I mean, in a way, business is about that. Uh, shops, shops, retails like that. Everything is getting people, you know, I always go back, if you look at my Wikipedia entry, it says that I used to be taken down by my father to Petticoat Lane, and I used to notice the people who shouted the loudest, and the stores got the most customers, and the, and, and it, nothing has changed. There's nothing sophisticated about it, all these management consultants and all this sort of business speak, it's all bollocks. You know, it's all about shouting the loudest, uh, and... So with the health club, it's the more people that knew that health club and everyone, not only did everyone in Henley know it was opening, there was a BBC hours programme trouble at the top about it. So that was a free advert. So I could beginning to see that the speech I did was begin. There was some benefit out of it, you know, because it, the notoriety made you, um, you could turn a negative into a positive. So anyway, I got 850 people to sign up for this club that I didn't know in this building. And then when I got the direct debits, then of course I could raise the money because everybody could see that I'd already had a whole load of members and they wanted the club in Henley. So there was no risk involved. Uh, I still had a lot of banks turn me down, um, even with that. But, but funnily enough, one of the bank managers, his wife had joined. Um, so sometimes you need a bit of luck. And I think that he was the one that actually lent me the money. Wow. And then off you went, entrepreneur born again, into a totally different industry. And then you sold it? I sold it two and a half years later for four million pounds. Wow. Cash. And when I, I didn't even have to pay any tax on that because I'd lost so much money on my shares in Rat. <laughs> so it was brilliant. I went on holiday and uh, went skiing and uh, it was a wonderful feeling. Um, and I then... Uh, didn't want to go back to the situation of lying at home, staying at home again because I knew that it antagonised my wife. So um, I decided the internet jewellery, I could grow the business quite quickly doing that way at the turn of the century. Uh, so I then put half the money back into that, into a venture, um, selling jewellery online, which became very successful. And we took that to about £25 million worth of sales. So, so, let, so let me stop you there just for a second. Mm. Anybody in your position would have been tempted to go bricks and mortar. Anybody in your, having done what you did, mm. having grown the family business, to say, but you went down the e-commerce. What and, and that was at the early, from what you just saying, that was very much the early stage. Oh, so what was the logic behind that in your mind? Because I knew that I couldn't replicate what I had, uh, you know, um, from scratch again, um, because it takes. The Ratner's business by my father building it up 
took years to get me into a situation. I would never have been able to buy HTML if it wasn't my father building up the business in the first place. You've got to have a vehicle to make a takeover bid and to even to build those shops organically um, in 2001 uh, takes years. Nobody's going to build a business organically in five years even. So I'd buy, you know, I was looking at a shop in Reading um, as my first shop and I thought, I'm not going to have one shop and then open a second, go through all that. And, and then I saw the internet. I thought, internet, you are already having a million shops. You're hitting everybody in the whole world instantly. You've got a shop in every town in the world, in the country at least. Well, actually it wasn't the world because we only sold to the UK. But anyway, immediately the thing that appealed to me is that I would have a shop in every town straight away. That's the sort of thing that I like. You know, I don't like one shop. So, but the problem was that nobody was buying anything on the internet in 2001. <laughs> so- and how, long did, how long did it take before you started to say, well, well, before you thought this was a good decision? I mean, that must have been, like well, I said, 2001 was early days. It was, it did take, it's suddenly around 2003, 2004, after struggling, it suddenly, our sales went mad. It started going up enormously. But then it became, it became very easy to drive sales at that time because it got very cheap to get onto Google, uh, paper yeah. picks, because there was very little, there was nobody selling jewellery online. So yeah. there was no competition for words. Um, but then suddenly everybody realized, oh, the internet's a panacea. And uh, those words became ridiculously expensive. So in the end, our marketing costs, instead of 3%, became 25%. So our prices couldn't be so competitive. And we started suffering. And that point, mm -hmm. I, was, I started doing more uh, public speaking because I could see that People said to me, you know, you've got quite a story here. Yeah. Uh, ups and downs and all that sort of stuff. Um, it would, and I was invited to, to do speeches, but I didn't realise that this is my stupidity. I didn't even realise you got paid for them. So I was doing the speeches and I started having conversations with other speakers. And they were being paid. For, I couldn't believe the amount they were being paid. <laughs> here I, they said, how much are you getting? I said, nothing. It's well, I'm getting eleven thousand pounds. What? And I thought, God, this is the best business in the world. It's a hundred percent profit, and I love it. I love listening to my own voice. And I started doing it. And at one stage, <laughs> I was turning over half a million pounds in speed. Wow! You know, it was it was the most incredible, and it you know it was a business that I loved because I was learning. I was traveling around other businesses, yeah. chatting with people. It was perfectly tailored to somebody like me, who is a bit of an extrovert who likes making people laugh because obviously that's how I got into trouble in the first place. And I just, I loved it. I absolutely love it. And I still love it. And I've been deprived of it this year. And I'm yeah. really upset about that. But then in the last week, I've now started getting um, bookings again. That is a wonderful feeling. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, listen, I heard you speak, gosh, in Birmingham. Must be four, five, six, seven years ago. I can't remember when it was, but it, you were brilliant. You were brilliant. I've remembered you, and then uh, I think your tweet set me off. And then I've heard you at a couple of other places, and I thought I've got to get this chap both in my magazine, the Business Influencer, but also in the podcast. So let me now just ask a few questions along that along that journey. Um, you talked about the importance of listening 
you talked about understanding human behavior. Uh, so when you were recruiting or if you were to recruit today, what would be more important, IQ or EQ, the, the emotion of people and how, what their emotional state and, and how they look at emotion? Uh, you know, what are the, what are the sort of the key traits you would look for if you're employing someone today? Well, somebody said to me that um, they were running, he runs a restaurant actually. Okay. He was saying to me that he would rather promote somebody who had worked as a, in the kitchen, washing up dishes, putting the dustbins out at two o'clock in the morning when the restaurant closed, had built his way up from there or her, um, then bring in some university graduate uh, at a high salary, um, you know, at an older age, and just to, and for them to come in a, an executive position. So, this is what I don't understand about business today. You get people coming in, running businesses, coming right at the top that have never been a manager or an area manager or a sales assistant. I always feel you get some of them, you know, obviously, but you get a lot that are not, that have come in from university thinking that they know everything, don't have the work ethic that the person who put the dustbins out at two o'clock in the morning. Um, so I've always tried to um, get people to start at the bottom, like I did, work their way up. Mm. And that way, when they get to the top, they can look at the workers down below, they can look them in the face and those people will have respect for them because they know that they did exactly what they, you know, they're not a different breed and that they can achieve what that person can achieve. So I like people, you know, I like to bring in people um, who haven't been necessarily to university or not graduates who are prepared to, um, you know, do really basic stuff and, um, I think it's a good way to start. I've got a friend of mine who's a multimillionaire and um, his son wants a job and he phoned up a, his friend who owns a huge building company and uh, he says, I want you to give my son a job. He said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, oh, just so you can climb up the scaffolding or something like that. Something as basic as you can because that will be, that will hold him in good stead. But if you put him in an office with a swivel chair and a secretary, It'll be a waste of space. Uh, he's got to start at the bottom. And, you know, I'm a great advocate for that. I think people who have done that um, are much better equipped when they get to the top. At the moment, there's, um, you know, just as we're coming out of COVID, people are questioning uh, mental health. Uh, you spoke about your seven years. Um, and what, did, what did you learn about yourself during those seven years. And, and, and you know, it's, it is about a mind shifter, but you managed to overcome that. So what lessons did you learn? And what did you learn about yourself going through those seven years and then seeing yourself well, rise up to such a brilliant level well, again? I, I, I learned that by wallowing in your own grief and being self-pitying and telling everybody how unlucky you are, makes it even worse. People don't sympathize. They, you, you know, when you listen to a Radio 5 phone-in and somebody saying what a terrible life they've got, it doesn't actually get them anywhere 
everybody's saying, oh, well, you're really unlucky and all that sort of stuff. In fact, and once the phone call's uh, finished, it's, they put the phone down, that's the end of it. And I think, oh, well, somebody who's not got a very good life. So it's no point in doing any of that. And um, I found that, yes, you know, we all suffer from mental health. Um, you know, I suffered from mental health for a very good reason because I didn't have any money and I had debt and I was humiliated and I'd lost everything. So these things do generate depression. There's no question, you know, but there are people that suffer from depression who don't have all those problems. Um, and in fact, today I don't have any financial problems, but I have bad days like everybody else. And I don't know why, you know, some days. But what I do find is that if I exercise, go for a long walk or cycle. It doesn't have to be, I don't have to do cartwheels or lift ridiculous weights or anything like that. But if I do exercise, suddenly feel a million times better. You know, my wife might give me a hard time because, you know, I've done that job or I'm, you know, I've made a mess of the floor or something, which I'm always doing. And I, you know, think, oh God, my life's miserable. But then I go out on my back <laughs> and I come back and I'm a different man. So I've learned, you know, the exercise, and I didn't do exercise that, that much when I was running around because I didn't have time, but if you can make time for it, and you should make time for it, uh, is the most important thing that I can recommend to fight mental health. Um, it's the one thing, you know, you get your endorphins going. Um, you think clearly, you know, if you're sort of in a board meeting and people are firing questions at you, you, you need to impress and you're quickly, you, when you're under pressure like that, you don't actually think clearly or come up with solutions. Um, when I go on my bike, I solve my problems. I get my best ideas. I don't do that when I'm in my office or anything like that. So I love, I love exercise and, um, you know, I'm 71 I cycled 25 miles every day. Today I was in London. I went to see an exhibition uh, of paintings. Um, I got back to Maidenhead. The train, the connecting train was not there. So I walked the hour and 20 minutes to my wow. thing. Um, and loved it. And then I walked the dog when I got back. So, you know, it's, it, exercise has saved me, you know, and um, during the pandemic, I don't think I would think I'd go completely mad because I'm a social animal and uh, I've got a routine of doing a lot of exercise to, you know, uh, get through certain days. I'm, I'm in the office during the week, but weekends and stuff like that, I've, you know, if you're not seeing people, you weren't being able to see people uh, earlier in the year, you know, I'd go mad. So, I'd, you know, I, I would do exercise then. I would go for long walks, listening to, I don't listen to podcasts like everybody else, but I listen to sort of drama on mm. sounds and stuff like that. So which I would never listen. If I'm going on my walk, I'm never listen to any current affairs or anything about the pandemic or any news items or any documentaries. I would listen to something based in the 14th century because uh, you get completely carried away by that. You know, you get total escapism, um, which is what you want to do when you want to go for a walk. You want to escape your yeah. normal life. You don't want to keep being reminded of it. Yeah. I, I prefer dance music myself when I want to relax. I listen to well, I dance listen music. music. Uh, I love music. I listen to music on my bike. I listen to the yeah. spoken, spoken word when I walk. don't know why, but that's what I just a, a couple of questions that we're going to try and wrap up. Uh, 
I was going to ask you what's your worst decision. We know what that is. So what about what about your best ever decision that you think? Thank God I made that decision. Just just out of curiosity, what's your best decision then? It's two. It's one that I bought. I decided to buy H Samuel because that put me in yep. the Premier League, albeit I didn't stay in it. Uh, and two is that I started to um, start doing speeches, um, and that came about actually because. I wanted to publicise Gerald online, my online jewellery business. So I went, yeah. phoned up the. I realised the only thing anybody's any, interested about me is the speech. So I, I emailed the Albert Hall, the chief executive of the Institute of Directors. I said, why don't you have me back in 2003? Uh, because I, I wanted to say what I was doing now and promote my yeah. business, which he did. And that's how it got me back on this, got me onto the speaker circuit. So the decision. Uh, the best decision, apart from H. Samuel, was actually to go back to the Albert Hall, <laughs> go back to the scene of the crime, <laughs> mm. not avoid it. That was my best decision, strangely enough. And, you know, as I say now, that I lost everything through that speech. And it's ironic that I now make a living out of it. Two last questions. Uh, one is, uh, as I said, you were the king of the high street. Where is the high street going? As it does, it have a future. No, I can't see that it does because I was in Oxford Street today. Half the oh. shops are closed. So how can anybody? You know, I know that even when there was, I did well when I had shops around me that were busy. I'd love to be, but next door. I mean, at the time, next were doing very well. And I remember when they opened up next to us in Kensington High Street, our sales, I phoned up the manager and said, why have our sales gone up, up so much? He said, because next about next door, I never even heard of them. It was one of their first shops, but they said they got their packed out. So you rely on your neighbours. That's why I'm always against charity shops, because I don't think they draw people to the high street. You know, they've allowed to be in there paying no rate and stuff like that. So it's proliferated them. It hasn't done the high street way before the pandemic. I think the pandemic has speeded up the demise of the high street. Um, if you look at now younger people, they live on their phones. I don't say it's a good thing. I think it's a bad thing, but that is the way it is. Um, people are just preferring buying online. Um, and I just think that there's too many, if you look at it actually, um, there's more retail space today than there was before the internet started. So how does that work? It's just, there's just too much of it. So I think the high street will go. I think it should be turned to residential. And I said that in the mail on Sunday two years ago before anybody else did. And I think that... Um, there will be some shops, but they will be far, you know, probably the high street will disappear. You might have some shopping malls or out of town, but there'll be far, far less shops. Water's got to reach its own level. And at the moment, there's just too much space out there. Too much it's interesting. I was reading I was reading the papers over the weekend. Uh, the 38 shopping malls had been sold in the first half of, a year for about 500 million which is nothing nothing think absolutely nothing nothing another 360 million were under offer and of 29 centers half the shops were empty so they, they seem to be following what what your observations are 
I remember, you know, we had a shop in Croydon Whitgift Centre. We sold a thousand earrings, I remember, in one day. I went down there. It was like a football crowd. You could not move. It was before Christmas, yeah. It was heaving. People were queuing. Those days have gone, sadly. Uh, people are not, you know, people are not out and about. And that's it. And so, yeah. yeah. So, do you encourage everyone to go digital then? Not encouraging anybody to do anything. Um, but I just think that that is the way it's going. Well, I don't try and influence anybody. I, I, what I try and do is see where people are going and I go there to try and make money. Uh, so I just follow the, you know, the trends. Um, and the trend is that everybody is on their phones. Um, and the phone is becoming more and more it's becoming easier and easier to order stuff. Uh, Amazon started all that really. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it will go 70, 80% online, 20% bricks and mortar by, you know, in about five years time. I think that's the way it'll end up. Uh, is it a good thing? No, I think it's better that people are out and about, they go shopping, they will go to, coffee bars, they'll have a sandwich, they'll meet some friends. I mean, it was a big thing. I was taken by my mother on a Saturday afternoon to the local department stores, and it was a day out. What is the pleasure of tapping something out on a phone, you know, and it's all done in a second? You know, you made the, the sh shopping experience, you know. I don't like using these words, shopping experience, and somebody's using now their journey. The, shopping what do they call it their, their journey it's not why can't you just buy something why do you have to go on a journey you know but it is a fact that um although you know you never know with forecasts because you know somebody once said that um when the japanese produced the chip that the swiss watch industry would die because it was much more accurate yeah. than the moving parts yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to the Swiss watch. There was no reason for them to continue because they were, there was no accuracy. You could buy a chip, buy a watch from a petrol station for a fiver, which was better than a Rolex, more accurate than a Rolex. But they turned their watches into jewellery. They, they, somebody, I know this is a ridiculous example, but they said that the whole of London in the Victorian times would be covered, would sink in manure because there were so many horse and carts. They didn't know there was going to be the car that's going to go. So nobody knows for sure. We're all making predictions based on the past. And the past is never a good um, form guide for the future. Yeah. If you look at a horse and you look at its form and it's won the last four races, then you say, I'm going to back it. It's not, it then doesn't win the fifth race. It's not as easy as that. Life is not as easy as that. Business is not as easy. So nobody knows is the answer. Not even, especially not me. Two very short questions before we finish. Uh, you said it looks like going forward. So I'm thinking of new entrepreneurs. 80-20 probably dictated by e-commerce. So would you say to anyone, if you're looking to start something up, you really want to be looking at something with a digital sort of aspect to it, probably. Not necessarily. In fact, there's a lot to be said for doing something that is unfashionable, that not everybody and their dog are doing. Um, 
you know, I don't think that um, it makes sense to just say, well, you know, digital is booming. That's where it is. It's all, everything is now, you know, we'll, we'll go down that road. You know, I think the key to, is to be good at something, you know, and to do it better than your, but I've always liked to do a business where in fact, not everybody is doing that. You know, when I did the health club business, there weren't a lot of health clubs in 1997. When I went on the internet at the turn of the century, everybody said, don't go near it. It's a, nobody's going to buy anything on it's a business to business vehicle. We just had the dot-com bust, bubble burst. It's not the time. So I always like to do things when they're unfashionable to not follow the crowd. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people do the obvious people. Well, actually, I hope you're right because obviously we. I hope you're right because we've just launched a magazine, the Business Influence, and everybody said you're crazy doing a physical magazine. It's digital as well, uh, but so far the reaction's good. So I hope you're right. Um, last question then, Gerald, before I let you go. Um, best three tips you would give to today's entrepreneur with, all, with your an amazing journey you've had. What three tips would you give to entrepreneurs? Well, I think don't play by the rules. Don't follow the script. Do what you want to do. You don't have to do the normal type of approach to business. In fact, if you do that, you will fail because most businesses do fail. So the one that succeeds is the one that's a bit off the wall. You does something totally different, um, breaks the rules. Rules are there to be broken. Um, and if you break the rules and you don't worry about how you do it, then um, but you make up your mind that you do want to do it and nothing will stop you. You know, I mean, this is not a very good example, but I had to do a speech uh, last year in Portsmouth and the road was blocked, but I had to get to the hotel that's my view if I'm if I'm doing a speech I have to be there so I drove all the way down the lay-by on the motorway you know completely illegal but I got there on time I didn't care what the consequences were and there's a little bit like that in business you have to what everybody you can't let anybody get in your way um, you have to achieve that and I do think that um, business is something that People say, you know, well, you've got a vision and just do it. But there's a lot of detail and little boring bits on the way. You know, I was at a Wallace Collection in London today looking at a Canaletto painting. The artist had a vision, but he also introduced a tremendous amount of detail. All the buildings were perfectly formed. There were people on the Grand Canal in Venice rowing the boats, you saw their muscles, the people, you know, there was so much incredible detail and, and business is like that. You have to get all the detail right. So yeah, don't follow the script, uh, be an expert in terms of getting your business right. And then finally, like me, don't give up because you will be turned down. You know, my nephew was turned down for a job today and he was very upset. I said, how many times have you been turned down? He says, this is it, I've been I've turned down six times in a row. I said, well, that's quite good actually, because on average it's, it means that you, you know, people get turned down eight times before they get a job. So um, you'll be, you only got two to go. You know, your, your failure is the route to success. Uh, and it is a bit like that, you know, you have to fail to succeed. 
Gerald, just just some of the things, and just add me for forgetting things. So, <clears throat> some, some brilliant stuff here. So, you explained how how difficult or easy it is to be in a family business. How you learned from very 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 young, and how that experience was better than having a high IQ because of school or college or university. You spoke spoke about how to use finance to grow. The importance of listening to people. Uh, really listening, being empathetic, big vision. You know, you were really ambitious. You were driven by that big vision. The importance of brand. You spoke about, you know, if you shout loud, then people will notice. I love the example of uh, the person who shouts at the stall. Um, and, of course, you talked about at times if you can copy what other people are doing, that that, that makes, the, you know, that, that can help you. Um, and you spoke about, you know, sometimes if you're going to grow your brand, you know, look at all the tools. I mean, today it's social media, but in, in those times it was speaking. Um, and, and I think that was really interesting. You've given views on where you think retail is going. And again, you've given views on, if you're an entrepreneur, the role that you should now be looking to do and, and the kind of tips that you gave were fantastic. You know, don't follow everybody else. Look at detail. Be an expert. And above all, and this I can definitely say it is right for you, you don't give up. And uh, I think you'll go down in history as someone who's seen completely A to Z of what running a business is. And it's been fascinating. And you know, something I've heard you a million times and uh, didn't detract from the fact of listening to your story again. So compelling. And, and you know, so much we can learn from what you've done. So thank you very much again for your time. Thank you for devoting the evening, why well, it's now evening, uh, and telling your story, uh, an amazing journey it is, and thank you very much for your time. Jinder, thank you so much for those kind words. Much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode, and if so, please do leave a review. It all helps in promoting the podcast. Oh, and by the way, have a great day.